At age 21, David Brainerd came to Christ. Soon afterwards, he enrolled at Yale University to study theology in his pursuit of becoming a pastor. Now, that was old for a student at the time. Normally, they would enroll around the age of 16. During the first great awakening, he heard at Yale preachers like Whitfield, Tennant, even Jonathan Edwards. Brainerd was struck by what he heard. And the flames of revival began to stir in him. Even though he'd only been a Christian a short time, he knew that there was a reality of the Spirit of God at work through the preaching of God's Word. Brainerd was eventually expelled, though, from Yale. There was a conflict at Yale. There was uh, essentially between old and new school, and essentially those who believed that anything that was too emotional uh, needed to be resisted. And so in that case, um, eventually he would not, uh, he was one of those, Brainerd was one of those who would not deny the effects of what was going on with the revival that was starting to move among the students even at Yale. That and probably had something to do with it that he said that one of his professors had no more grace than a chair. That might have sealed the deal. Interestingly though, this event led to a series of events that eventually would lead to the birth of Princeton. I actually had the privilege of being down there this last week. In fact, there's a cemetery at Princeton that has many great, like Whitfield's there, you have Jonathan Edwards there. It's really a pretty phenomenal place to go and visit. And yet it's also phenomenal in the sense that we know that just like so many of the early churches that the Spirit of God does not necessarily remain. He remains in believers, but he does not necessarily remain in local churches and in movements that they have a tendency to drift. Sometime during his time at Yale or soon after his leaving, he contracted tuberculosis, which would mark his short life. His pursuit of the pastorate was derailed without a degree, and even though he did get sponsorship and was called, his heart for missions began to grow, and his desire to reach the Native American Indians began to supersede everything. And so as he began to pursue that, he still needed support, he needed a sending agency, and so by the good and right Scottish Presbyterians, uh, both from overseas, but even right out of New York City, they constituted him to go and reach Indians. And he began that work by going to the Mohican tribe in the New York area. In 1743, he began that work and eventually traveled to Eastern PA. So actually just a little bit, uh, almost directly north of us where the Delaware River forks, he was in the Eastern edge of PA and starting to reach the Delaware Indians there. He had met Jonathan Edwards prior, and Edwards was really struck by his missionary zeal for the young man. In fact, Edwards had even written a work that he was even cautioning against some of the hyper-emotionalism that was going on with the first Great Awakening. So even though he was part of the Great Awakening, he was setting some cautions, some things that he didn't necessarily like. But one thing that he did very much like was seeing someone like Brainerd have the right kind of fruit for revival, which was a missionary zeal. So they became, in a sense, distant friends, but you'll see how this plays out. So it's 43 when he begins the work among the, the Indians, and in 1745, he travels then south to Trenton, to the Trenton area, and ministers to tribes there. He had not had a lot of fruit in the eastern part of Pennsylvania or even in the New York area, but once he got outside of the Trenton area and began ministering to tribes there, there were many that began coming to faith. And while there, they built 
church, they built a school, they built even an infirmary to just show that as the gospel begins to take root and affect not just individuals, it changes how a community lives and acts and serves. But in 1746, so again, remember, this began in 1743. In 1746, the tuberculosis set in. He was coughing up blood constantly. And eventually, Jonathan Edwards made arrangements for David Brainerd to spend the remaining, whatever was left of his life, with him in his home. Now, in the course of that, Edwards' daughter, Jerusha, had occasionally corresponded with Brainerd. Now, she was about 10 years or so younger And even though there wasn't necessarily a a direct statement of love, I think you can read between the lines here in just a minute to understand the the deep romance, uh, appropriately so, of this situation, although it's tragic in some way, in an earthly sense. She became his caretaker as he had tuberculosis, no cure, caring for him while in Edward's home. After several months, Brainerd eventually died on October 9th of 1747. So he began his missionary work in 1743, essentially sustained that for about three years, and in the fourth year, he died. He was 29 years old, 29. Jonathan Edwards actually recorded the last conversation that he heard Brainerd having with his daughter, Jerusha. And again, remembering Jerusha is about 18, Brainerd is about 29 at this point. But here's the quote that Edwards gives us in this correspondence. And this is why, you know, for even us dumb guys, this is not reading between the lines. He said, if I thought I should not see you to be happy with you in another world, I could not bear to part with you, but we shall spend a happy eternity together. Now, whether or not it all works out like that in eternal glory, I appreciate that Edwards did not apparently go and try to fix his view of of heaven or end times or what kind of arrangements we have, but there was definitely a deep-seated affection there. In fact, just a few months later, at the age of 18, Jerusha died of tuberculosis. Edwards knew what it would cost, potentially, for this kind of care to happen. In the course of this, Edwards, with all of his brilliance, most of his writings the abundance of writings, in fact, they're in the library at Yale. Most of them were done in his, by his mid-20s. Edwards was brilliant, but he could not let go of the challenge of Brainerd on his life, this young man, his zeal. So he ended up putting together a work called The Life and Diary of David Brainerd. This became an instrumental work in any number of missionaries, but just for some of, some of you who may know, So, for instance, it was instrumental in William Carey being called, who's literally called the father of modern missions. It was instrumental in his calling to be a missionary. Or perhaps there's someone like by the name of Jim Elliott, who was killed and martyred by the Aka Indians in South America. This book was very instrumental while he was in college to call him to missions. See, the fact is, is that partnership, whether through Edwards or through a sending agency like the Scottish Church out of New York. Whatever it is, this partnership led to, even though it looks like on paper, a very short life. This would not be a good investment in an earthly sense. And yet it ended up producing a work that to this day has never one time in 275 years has never been out of print, ever. 
the life and diary of David Brainerd continues to serve as this impetus for many to be called to missions. If you would take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We will pause our study in 1 Peter today and we will look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now let me give you a little bit of background. So we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and we'll actually be in verses 16 through 24. This includes a theme verse for our week called Brothers Partner With Us. Now let me give you just very, very brief background on this. So many of you know that Paul had a, it wasn't even love-hate, but there was a lot of tension in his love for the Corinthian people. They were a messed up lot, very much so. But he just would not give up on them. For, for whatever reason, the affection that Paul had for the Corinthian people was really strong. So in 1 Corinthians, essentially his first letter to them, he essentially is calling them to be unified together, but also unified around the right reasons, not a sinful version of love and acceptance and tolerance, but the gospel and those effects to make sure that they are a unified people that they're not split up by Jew and Gentile, and they're also making sure that their rallying cry truly is the gospel as it was brought to them by the apostles. But 2 Corinthians is a little bit different. It's still a call to unity, but essentially it leans into this idea of being called to be unified together for the cause of the gospel. So whereas the first one is unifying around the gospel, being unified together as a people, the other one is, the second one is being unified together for the cause of the ministry of the gospel going forward. And in fact, if we were to thumb through the chapters and even in your English Bibles, as you see headings that were put in there for, for our edification to just be able to find themes quickly, you would quickly see that the idea of being unified in our purpose and in our giving and our generosity, that it flows out of a very distinct articulation in chapters four and five. Namely that what Paul calls the ministry of reconciliation, that when Christians understand what's happened to them in the gospel, that this is the natural outflow of that, which would be generosity, partnership, giving, and sending of those to go and proclaim the glory of Christ throughout the world. Which would tell me if we ever struggle in being unified and partnering together in our purpose and our passion and our generosity in sending people out, the key there is not to fix the budget. The key there is not to necessarily even fix our approach or whatever. It's to go back to the root and make sure, do we understand what it was like to be saved? Do we understand the ministry of reconciliation? In fact, with your Bibles, for some of you, it's just going to be one page back, but go ahead a page or two. Go back to chapter 5. I want to read verses 16 through 21, where he gives us this launch into the effects of what you'll see in chapter 8. In chapter 5, verse 16, he says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. A new creation. Right off the bat, he's saying that we are thinking of people in a spiritual sense. Not in an earthly sense or a fleshly sense. We're thinking of the eternality of those made in the image of God. 
The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Well, what, what is that? Oh, well, the next verse actually says that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So those that are given the message to proclaim that you can be reconciled to a holy God even though you are filled with trespass and you are filled with sin and you are completely separate from him, he gives those people this message. It's crazy. It's what he does. Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. Now, for those of you who are with us week after week, this is very consistent with what Peter is saying about us being elect exiles, that this is not home. We are ambassadors. We are here on behalf of another country, so to speak. And we function according to those laws. We are here for a reason, and it's to bring peace. That's essentially what embassies are there to do, to help reconcile and bring peace between nations by living among them. It's just for us, we are clear to say that peace can only be made through Jesus Christ to God the Father. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And it is out of that gospel message, that message that we are all sinners in need of a savior, that we are sinners and we cannot ever measure up to God's requirement. All we can do is receive and accept the fact by faith that Jesus Christ met that requirement and he died taking on himself the penalty for sin, which we did deserve, but he stood and was nailed and was killed in our place buried, actually died, but then rose again so that there's no more need for any other person or God-man to come and live that perfect life or die that perfect death because he did it in our place. We have to have faith that we need that and that he did it. We also have to believe that he's alive. And with that, for the church that actually believes in that and holds to that, we should then, with that ministry of reconciliation, it should charge us to move forward in what it is to actually be partners for the sake of the gospel together. Now, go back to 2 Corinthians 8 and beginning in verse 16. Here's what Paul says. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care that I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal... But being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out his act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the, in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them, we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, 
He is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. As for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. What I want us to look at today is how this passage charges us to be partners together and the ways that it charges us to be partners together for the sake of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Let's pray first. God, I pray that your word would go forth. I pray that it would produce fruit. I pray that it would fall onto soil that you have prepared already in the hearts of missionaries that are with us and watching, that they may be encouraged and reinvigorated even, renewed in their passion to do what you've called them to do, to endure well, but also, Lord, for us to see if we are only those who have been, had an appeal made to because we feel like we ought to do something for missions, or have we sensed from you that you are stirring us with an earnest desire to do these things as well? God, whatever the case is, I pray that you would help us as a church to essentially understand so deeply what this ministry of reconciliation is that it would outwork itself into a generosity that is entirely unreasonable but gives you great glory. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. First of all, in verses 16 and 17, I want us to look briefly at what is it to be partners in passion, partners in our passions. I love the articulation here where he says, but thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. This overflowing gratitude comes very simply from the fact that God has sovereignly and graciously put it in the heart of Titus himself to have the same passion and desire that Paul does. Partnership in ministry helps, is helped and aided so much when we share a passion for that gospel. Not just a sense of ought to. See, a sense of ought to for the Christian, that can last for a while, that can last for a season. But when we actually share a passion for what we're doing together. When that's really shared, we, that actually can last a lifetime and actually go on after generations. Remember, Jonathan Edwards shared a passion. In fact, even after Jonathan Edwards was ousted from his church after 25 years, he spent some time himself ministering to Native Americans, to Indians. He was so invigorated by the ministry of David Brainerd. They shared a passion. And what happened? It produced a work that's now persisted for 275 years. So this partnership and passion, it certainly invigorates Paul. Now, he still says in verse 17, for he not only accepted our appeal. So rightly so, the church that, that Paul was, was a part of and, and was helping send these people to minister to the Corinthians... He was going to make the appeal. And it would still be fine if Titus went because of that appeal. But when there's no reluctance, but actually a shared passion in going, it overflows with gratitude. And how much more endurance are we able to have in ministry when we know that gratitude is helping to carry us through? So question, ask yourself, whether you live here in Milford and you're not necessarily a missionary, but you know that you are called to be on mission and you're called to be a partner in mission, you need to ask yourself, how is your earnestness given by God to reach those who are without Christ? 
Is it a passion that you can say you're thankful for? Or is it still a little bit in that ought to realm of, I know I should, I need to do a better job of it. But I promise you, your gratitude and your joy in the Lord will increase when you seek the Lord to give you earnestness, a passion for the lost. But we're not just partners in this passion, even though that certainly is is something we should seek after and ask the Lord to do for us. There's also a partnership in the purpose. So passion, in in my view, really does precede purpose. It defines purpose. You won't know the direction that you're going if you don't understand the real heart behind it. That doesn't mean we're living off of emotion. Okay, when I say passion, I'm talking about something that overwhelms you, that basically you can't do anything but this. Essentially, you'll find that passions cause you to leverage your resources to accomplish it. Let me put it like this. If you've ever been a season ticket holder for something, you, and maybe you're, you're a guy and you've never been great at, at working on the budget with your, your wife, I promise you, if your season tickets at a particular, you know, for a particular football event or, or team, Rich Horse, then you're going to figure out different ways to make sure that the budget works so that you can get those season tickets again. Why? Because there's a passion there. I'm not making any charges against Rich. I'm just, he's just the only person I know that has some kind of season tickets. But you will figure it out. I have, a, I have a passion for music and for equipment and particularly like headphones. I will figure out what I can do without in order to have what I know ministers to me. I don't really have a passion for tools but I know many people that do. I actually have a bunch of tools, but I also have a bunch of tools that I have sold that I would never use to fund my passion for headphones. So see, you'll figure something out. It will cause you to leverage your resources to see it come about because it's your passion. To be a partner in purpose, look at verses 18 and 19. With him, we are sending the brother who is famous among who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. So part of what's going on here is this team is actually, this ministry of grace is is essentially a contribution that's going to the church at Corinth. They're carrying with them very real, actual financial provision But you see how it's also tied to the gospel? They're also sending a person who's part of the team who is known to be a preacher of the gospel. Now, we don't know exactly why he doesn't name him. He just simply says that he is famous for preaching the gospel. And there's all kinds of speculation of who that could be. Maybe it could be Luke. Maybe it could be Mark at this point in ministry. Perhaps it could be Apollos. Whatever the case is, the interesting part is that when you consider that his first letter was about unity, and you also consider that Paul has made very clear articulation that some go after Paul, some go after Apollos, but Paul says, it doesn't matter if you go after Christ. If Christ is preached and him glorified, I don't care who gets credit. Whatever the case is, it would be speculation for us to guess why, but I can at least say that the implication is that The point here is not to prop up men, but to say that if this guy's on the team, it's for the purpose of the gospel to be proclaimed among you. And coming with it is, yes, 
this ministry of grace, this administration, which again is this financial contribution that's being brought to the churches. And so there's this tie-in of this purpose for this team essentially is to support the work of the gospel while doing the work of the gospel. So when we're partners together in mission, when we're partners together in ministry, we must understand that it works much better if we share a passion for that gospel. And then from there, we actually share then a partnership in the purpose of what we do. That when we share that common passion to leverage our resources and to be passionate to make sure the gospel is then proclaimed, things work so much better and you're able to endure so much more hardship and difficulty along the way. Because again, those of you who are with us regularly, 1 Peter, the gospel will be resisted by a world that doesn't want to receive that message. Paul and his team want the gospel clearly heard. They want it seen. They want it known. They want it supported. This is gospel telling and funding. That is essentially the purpose of this particular mission, mission's pursuit. But as we're partners in passion and that fuels our purpose, I think it's also important then to understand, like we mentioned earlier, it affects our partnership in provision. That would be a third thing. I see that in verses 20 and 21. We take this course, okay, this approach, this, these teams and this manner that we're coming to you with. Listen, listen to this closely. So that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of men. Some of you in leadership have heard me say this phrase multiple times that, that we've had it as a, as a bit of an internal mantra before. But if I were to say the beginning of this phrase, some of you could finish it for me. No offense, but thank you. Okay, thank you. So I, I now know who the real leaders are. I'm just kidding. Um, no, absolutely. No offense, but the gospel. And, and the reason that shapes us as a staff, that we, the way that shapes us as leaders is to say this, that we would never depend on a great building to reach someone for Jesus. We would never depend on style of music to reach someone for Jesus. But I, I will tell you that I've certainly been places where someone who does not know how to play the violin has absolutely quenched the spirit. That doesn't mean you have to be great at it. I'm just telling you when it sounds like you're beating a cat and you try to hear the gospel, it's just like, okay, you're just daring the Holy Spirit to do the thing that he would do anyway. He could still save you if there's a terrible violinist playing. What I'm saying is, or a dirty building, or a building that's completely so out of date, I would never depend on those things to reach a person for Christ. But what a ridiculous thing to get in the way. But what about integrity? Even this week we've seen the leader of Hillsong have to resign because of several matters. Huge organization, a huge movement out of Australia. Because of a lack of integrity, a lack of character. How many times have you seen pastors or even whole ministries, Ravi Zacharias, fall because and crumble? Doesn't mean that the Lord has not, you know, people have questioned before, what do I do? I came to faith under so-and-so as a pastor or as a minister. And he then felt, well, again, our salvation is not tied to the messenger. One of my dearest friends growing up led a friend of his to Christ while they were both high. So, you know, that's not, we could start that ministry, 
And I bet it would, you know, some people would really like it. Let's do that ministry. But that's not what we're going for, okay? That's not, that, you know, that's, that's a, uh, that actually just simply says, look how sovereign and gracious God really is, that even in a situation like that. But the fact is, it's about the Spirit of God moving. What, a, what an amazing thing that in a situation like that, the gospel still comes out of lips that are mumbling other things, but it's clear. The fact is, is that nothing should get in the way of this because if we're passionate about it, understanding that it's about the glory of God and we are divining, so to speak, or organizing our purpose behind this gospel sharing, then we're also going to make sure that as far as we can do anything about it, we're going to make sure nothing gets in the way of this going forward. And that's what Paul's doing. He took every precaution to ensure the purity of the financial gift. It was known, I, I believe, that the accountability was so tight. They were doing a good job. It's much like what we try to do here. You know, we never count offerings where there's not a team of people that are doing that. We're going to live, in a sense, above board because the finances, which too often becomes a really weird conversation in churches, but the fact is, it is very much tied to our mission and our purpose and even is an expression of what we're really passionate about. Your money will go where your passion is. So with that, Paul is doing everything in his power to make sure that this thing is above board, that it is filled with integrity because he's not just living honorably before the Lord. It's important for him. He's not seeking the praise of men. He's just wanting to make sure that there is no unnecessary question or recuse coming against them related to this financial gift so that that silly aspect would not get in the way of gospel hearing. What a silly thing to send this famous preacher who proclaims the gospel only for them to question whether or not they actually have a Judas in their midst. And how many times in this text has he said, okay, this, this preacher, he was famous, but also he was sent by churches. He was commissioned by churches. In our next verse, he'll say that there's another guy coming as well, and he's been tested over and over again. They don't know him either. So there's at least a couple of guys on this team, whether they know him at a distance, but they don't know him personally. But he's saying, even though he may be famous or this other guy you may not know, what's common? The churches have tested them to make sure that they are faithful men. To make every precaution, to do everything that we possibly can to make sure that nothing hinders the hearing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are partners in this provision because if our passion is for it, then we should be passionate about making sure that there is nothing that could possibly be brought up against us in how we go about our business. I'll put it this way. The means does not justify the end if the means is improper. We do not live in a society that actually supports that all that well. You look at the political sphere. It's all about the win. Doesn't matter how you get there. It doesn't matter what you had to do to get there. As long as the policy is good on paper and maybe in implication. But what did you have to do all along the way? What compromises were made? What back room deals were made in order to bring that about? And too often, even in the church, we have this whatever it takes mentality. I get the impetus behind that. But we forget that God actually cares about how we do things. also in the sight of men. We are partners in passion. We're partners in purpose. We're partners in provision. And lastly, and this one sounds a little bit weird, but I couldn't find another P, but it's in the text. So it's partners in proof. But I think you'll understand what I mean by this. I was just stuck on alliteration. I don't always try to force that, but I was going to get this one. 
Okay, so verse 22. And with them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest. There's that word again. Very similar to what he is crediting as happened to Titus by God. Okay, so there's this desire that was God-given. He's been tested and he's found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. So Titus has been stirred to come to the Corinthian people. This guy's being stirred to come to the people. When there is that kind of partnership that you find, so same thing for you, you know, missionaries, as you continue, you know, we were in a church plant for five years. I didn't really like fundraising all that much until I started to realize that it only makes sense if I start to talk to people who share that passion. But when you start to find that, it actually becomes, it's almost like, it doesn't mean there's not work, but the money becomes almost a, a consequential part of the discussion. Because you're dreaming together about what the Lord can do. Clearly, Paul has been putting together this team of earnest individuals for the Corinthian people to want to see them grow in the faith. He says in verse 23, as for Titus, and he goes back and revisits that, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, the famous preacher and this other guy, they are messengers. And there could be others on the team, but even if we just stay focused on them, again, look at the, the theme here. As for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches. All along the way, he has said the churches have tested. The churches are sending Titus. The churches are sending this famous preacher. The churches are sending this other brother who's been tested. The centrality of churches. This is God's chosen means for missions until he comes, is the church. Not church buildings, but yes, the gathering of his people together for the called and stated purpose of being built up in the gospel and sharing the gospel with the lost world. So that's why in a very real sense, Milford Bible Church is very much, we will leverage now and in the future that it's really essentially about the church. It's about church planting movements. It's about missions and supporting those who are using even their gifts and their talents, even when they're putting together um, different platforms that many countries just won't accept certain platforms. So they put together business prospectus, prospecti, I don't know what the plural is of prospectuses is, is, but the fact is they'll put together different aspects of being able to do things like civil engineering or medical missions or that kind of thing. But the end game is not simply stitching up or inoculating. It is to eventually see a church established. And again, not a colonialized American Western version of it, but a biblical realization of it. Strip the skin of Milford off of this thing, but make sure the bones are clearly what is of Scripture. This is why even us as a church, we're making sure that in a sense, the, the fat and the skin is thin enough so that if you were to glance at who Milford Bible is, you do see the bones of Scripture of what a healthy church is, regardless of where in the world it would be. But nonetheless, we do have that skin on. We do have this, we're in the Northeast, we do have Milford, that skin is on us. But we want to make sure that we are supporting church planting movements and supporting missionaries who have a passion to see the church advance. Not us, but the gospel through established people gathered for that purpose, and then they become sending agencies as well. 
Church, we have to bear evidence of how this describes even the churches here, that they are testing the people that go out. They are examining, they're making sure that financially things are credible so the gospel is not compromised. And it's not even a stretch. It's a clear connection between credibility, integrity, and the advancement of the gospel. And he says, they are messengers of the churches, and look at the descriptor here, the glory of Christ. These messengers, as, and I think the description here of the glory of Christ is both messengers and churches because they are all part of the church. The glory of Christ. Christ has left the scene physically, but what has he left? Do you remember Christ himself described, he described himself as the temple. And he says, if you tear this thing down in three days, I'll build it up. They didn't know what he meant, but John helps us understand he was talking about his physical body and the resurrection that was to come. But even in 1 Peter, those of you who've been with us in chapter 1, he says, okay, but you're being built together. Who's he talking to? Churches. We know that Christ, when he came into the scene, light of the world. Who's now the light of the world now that Christ has ascended? The church. City on a hill cannot be hidden. The glory of Christ. Christ is to shine. The glory of Christ is to emanate from the local gathering of God's people. So as we see this, and we see this credibility and this fidelity go through, fidelity with theology, fidelity with doctrine, fidelity with the gospel message, as well as faithfulness and credibility, even financially and with provision. You know, church, you may not realize that, that, you know, your missions team actually seeks evaluations annually and reports from every missionary we support to make sure that as best we can tell, there is this kind of credibility and integrity going on. Okay, and that's not trying to police it. It's really the impetus is here. It's out of this text to understand that there is a connection. If there is impropriety, if there is a lack of integrity, then you are essentially putting your resources down not just a a dark and empty hole. You're also sharing in something where you guys no longer share passion. Why? Because again, passion and purpose fuels provision. And if that's the case, then it also fuels how you're providing, which means you're not going to let anything get in the way of the passion. But there are people out there, guys, that do make a shortcut and they are just looking for the next contribution. They still do some missions. And I don't mean the folks that we are supporting, but I'm saying I've done this long enough, almost 30 years as a missions pastor for several of those years. And we've seen people take advantage of that and it just became simply their income living in another country. And they did some things, but it was clear that their passion was more about preserving, even though it was a different lifestyle than what we have in the West, still was preserving where they were instead of supporting the mission. This is about the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ is the heartbeat, the fuel, the aim of the church. And what does that mean? It means nothing less than, so give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. To boast in the glory of Christ and men who promote the glory of Christ is to promote that we are boasting only in the fame of God. Regardless of the reason he doesn't name the famous preacher, we at least know this much. He's not going to let any name among a people, the Corinthians, who have a little bit of a tendency to drift towards the cult of personality. He doesn't let anything get in the way of making sure the name of Christ is paramount, supreme. His fame, his glory produces 
the thing that we have to prove, which is we love the lost world. We love the local church that's planted in the midst of a lost world. And this word for love is absolutely that God kind of love, that agape love, that kind of love that is sacrificial, that is gospel-ridden, that expects nothing in return. And it flows out of understanding that it is our desire to see Christ made famous that drives our desire to make sure that the world and the church understands that as Christians, as those gathered together, that we love them. Partnering in ministry means we partner in passion, purpose, provision, and proof. Look, we each play a part. Sending agencies and churches, missionaries, we play a part. Do you have a passion to see others come to Christ? I'm talking about you individually because that defines who we are corporately. How is your passion to really see others come to Christ? You'll know it in your purpose because it's pretty much what you're thinking about and what you're dreaming about doing. Again, doesn't mean that you're going to be a vocational minister or missionary. It does mean that you see whatever vocation God has given you as a means by which to be a missionary. All of us. What about your purpose? That can help define your passion. What about provision? How is that being leveraged for the glory of Christ, for the fueling of the passion of reaching the lost? David Brainerd was expelled. He was always sick. He struggled to find support. He served only about three years. He never married his love, and he died at the age of 29. But because of Christ and Christ's glory in the partnering of pastors and churches and a sinning agency of Presbyterians, the effects of his story have never stopped being told in these 275 years. So look, you're, don't estimate, even you who are missionaries, don't underestimate the value of presence for whatever length of time because God's economy and time clock is not based on what looks effective from the standpoint of men. He can take what you do in short order and do work that can impact people for hundreds of years. Live right now, not for your fame, but as if this could be a God story that is shared with others hundreds of years from now. Look, earlier in the sermon, we mentioned that, you know, this is a ministry of reconciliation. And I wanted to, you know, say one more time to those of you who may not know whether or not you are truly born again and know Christ as your Savior, to recall that point, to recall that aspect that you realize that you need to be reconciled to God, that you're not okay with God. And it's because sin is present. It's not just things that you do, it's just the way that you are, as all of us were who even claim Christ. And only through Christ can you be reconciled to God. And so we implore you on this day to come to Christ and find hope in Him, to have faith that He has lived a life you couldn't, died a death that you deserve, but also was raised from the dead, and therefore is the only sufficient Savior you possibly could ever know. 
And we invite you to come to him today. We will have elders and leaders around the back of the room as you leave. Find one of the folks hanging out and talk to them. Ask them, I want to know what it means to know Jesus. We have just a few minutes. I'm going to ask our missionaries that are with us. I'm not going to ask you to come down here, but I do want you to stand right where you are. Those of you who are in the room, those who are representing missions uh, or ministries that we support, go ahead and stand up right now. Those of you who are in the room, thank you for doing that and thank you for being here. What I want the body to do, those of you, no, go ahead and stay stood up, stood standing up. We do thank you very much for serving. Here's what I want to ask you to do. Um, stay standing and church body, if you would, I want you to, if you're close to these folks, I just want you to stand and get near some of these folks. Okay. So go ahead and gather around these folks right now. Okay. And if, for those of you who don't want to get up and move, that's fine. I want you to be praying for any of the missionaries that you uh, have ever remembered that we support and do that. But I want you to gather around some of these folks. Okay. And just show presence. I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. But I just want you to show presence and help them see that this is a partnership, okay? And it extends well beyond just those that are able to be around you right now, missionaries. But even on the worst of days, you guys are at the very least examples to us of what it means to leverage everything that we have for the passion of reaching people for Christ. And I pray that our partnership actually is enhanced because of what God does through his people here at Milford. Let's pray. God, we come before you now and we thank you for your mercy to us. We thank you for the ministry of reconciliation, that you have reconciled many of us in this room to yourself, that you have removed our sin as accounting against us, and you've given us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But God, there is a lost world. There are many without you. And I pray that you would help us to remove practicing sin, anything at all that would get in the way of passion revealing itself and being paramount in our lives. The passion to know you deeply and to make you known with everything that we are. That it would then define our purpose and it would help us to leverage all of our resources for the purpose, our time, our money, for the purpose of actually proclaiming the gospel in a lost world. And God, we thank you for these missionaries that are present with us right now. For those that are watching online, couldn't be with us as well. God, we pray that you would bless them richly. I pray that you would remind them of their passion that you gave them. I pray that you would remind them then of how their purpose flows out of that passionate calling to reach people for Christ. That it may help them endure maybe a particular hardship they're going through right now. God, I pray that also you would help them know it's not works-based that then that means they'll have enough money. Simply, I pray that it would give them wisdom on who they talk to, who they ask, and they would not be afraid to make an appeal, but that they would partner with people who are like-minded and like-hearted, who are earnest with them in seeing the gospel go out the way that it is going out with them, and that it may reinvigorate what seems like a very daunting and often disappointing task of raising funds. And God, lastly, I just pray that in that proofing aspect that we would all, whether we are senders or prayers or we are those who are actually on the field, that as we partner together, we would want to make sure that we do everything above board. Even for those missionaries who don't have strong infrastructure, I pray that they would build it in themselves so that they would take this same 
perspective that Paul does to make sure they're living honorably, not just before Christ, but also before men. They're not going to allow anything to get in the way of the gospel being heard. And I pray that that would happen because that's part of the outflow of that passion of seeing Christ magnified and famous. And Lord, I pray that you would then protect them because we know the evil one would love to thwart and destroy their testimony. And he does so so often through a lack of integrity with funds or something else that occurs with integrity or character. And I pray that you would protect and guard. And then Lord, promote and advance the success by your standards of these ministries. May it be for your glory and your fame alone. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.